of what seems a little echoey. I heard a message not long ago from one of the um, Ligonier Ministries fellows. Uh, I don't remember his name. He's got a cool accent from England somewhere. And I should know his name. But <clears throat> the title of his message was something along the line of the Trinitarian shape of the gospel. And I um, don't recall all of his points, but I kind of recall some of the ones that stuck with me. And so I just kind of wanted to lead a little discussion and a thought process about that myself tonight. And so the first thing I wanted to write down, if you want, I think I have five, uh, five points or something, is the first one is that the Father has always been a Father. Where in the Bible would you go to support that assertion that God the Father has always been a Father? Where would you go in the Bible to footnote that? I think it's a true statement. So where would you go in the Bible to confirm that? Anybody? Let me get you the mic, Dan, so that others can hear. It's okay if there's a slight delay as I run back and forth. Um, right, not chapter and verse. And I don't know that this goes for infinity, but, uh, but Jesus prayed to him as his father. Is that a good starting point? Other evidences. Where would you find support, Steve? Uh, two pieces of evidence I think that fit together. Uh, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So there's a, a Word and God together in the beginning. So I think that's from, from eternity. And then, uh, obviously, Jesus, especially in the rest of John, is, as a son relates to the Father. So those two, I think, would support that. I got the mic. I had to crawl over Doug a little bit. I invaded his personal space there for a little. So, so what Steve said is that one of the evidences that Father has always been a father is the eternal nature of the Son and the fact that the Son names himself the Son in the Scriptures. He calls the Father his Father, so if there's been an eternal Son, then there must have also been an eternal Father. That makes sense, Donna? I found one. Isaiah 64, 7. Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We're all the work of your hand. Right, so the prophets declare God as Father like that. Anyone else? I think that we would all grant this assertion pretty straightforward. But what difference does that make? That is, that's a really important idea. I think sometimes it's possible for us to kind of think of um, God as a monotheistic. He is monotheistic. There is one God, but he's in three persons. And if we thought of him as a singular person, we sometimes have the idea that he, um, there's a lot of heresies that are along this line where Jesus was 
a creature or a creator that the father begat Jesus at a certain point in time and began his fatherhood when he started with this primo top of his creation. So there is some false teaching and other religions in the world that view Jesus as the greatest <clears throat> creation of all of God's creations. And even would say that through Jesus, he created the rest of the world, but they still ultimately hold on a little to the idea that Jesus is a creature, that he had a beginning, and that he was... But since we are Trinitarian, we believe the Bible that in the beginning was the word. It was not, got started, he always was. And so Jesus is fully 100% God, and so he's always been. And so this relationship that the father has with Jesus has always been a father relationship. What is the, um, just quickly as we just stop for a minute, what is the ideal father mean? What is, what's so cool about the fact that God would reveal himself to actually be a father? And I also want to just say briefly here, we're not trying to figure out what God ought to be in order to fit our philosophy. What we're trying to say is what has God revealed himself to be? Because I could never be smart enough to actually figure out what he ought to be. So he has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what is so significant about fatherness? Why is that such a... What, uh, what other ideas does that bring to your mind, that being father makes... Why would... What does it mean, I guess is what I'm saying. Joel, hang on. I guess I think first of ideal characteristics of fathers here. A father provides, so God is the perfect provider. He has given every, us everything that we need for a life of godliness in him. Provision, what else does a father, well, a perfect father do? Okay, I'm coming. I know it's entertaining to see me walk back and forth, but if you could collect your thoughts in proportion to the room... I hope that this isn't a stretch, but in Genesis, Adam and Eve, it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. God created Adam and Eve, and he walked with them, and he taught them, and that's what a father does. He's, he's with them to guide and lead and um, to, to teach them. So a father provides, a father guides and leads and teaches. There's something, a father really enjoys the growth and development of his son, right? That, that's, a, that's a built-in thing. Father loves to do that. Marie. Well, father also, uh, me, if he is our father, there's a similarity. Uh, now, I know, you know, that humans are not God, but... Um, in his image, there's, there's that bond or that, you know, link there. So the fact that the Father would reveal himself as Father and then create us as creatures and create the family with father, mother, and child 
to reveal more about himself is kind of a beautiful thing, exactly, and it helps us understand. Dan, did you want to add something about fatherness? Uh, yeah, yeah, Aaron likes to remind me that they don't exacerbate their children, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was looking for the right verse. Yeah, it's in Ephesians. My, my children post it to me all the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, wait, a father somehow, yeah, somehow what a really great father is doing does not discourage the son. And make them feel like they can't measure up, or they're always short, or they're always not performing. There's this, there's this unconditional love that accepts the performance of the son and rejoices in it, not criticizes it. It helps when the son is perfect, for sure, right? But um, it doesn't mean that a, uh, in our world, because there's fall. We have to correct our sons sometimes, or to our daughters, but, but that's different. But, so the father doesn't have to correct Jesus, but they're a perfect family, and somehow they revealed themselves this way. Donna, you wanted to say something? Well, God is our provider, but he's also our protector. And a human father is supposed to protect, provide, and prepare the children. It's fascinating that in the present day, a leading cleric in England has declared that the problem of the Lord's Prayer is that it starts out our Father. So God the Father is not a human father. And so the fallenness of man should not be reflected back to God, but it's a common error. Since God is listed as Father, therefore it's problematic. Yeah, we, the, the world and sin has gotten us into a, a gender conflict and all that, and we're trying to, God has revealed himself as Father. We need to realize that human beings are created with gender, and that's not the same thing. It, right. But that God has revealed himself as Father is ideal in the sense of perfect fatherness. And so that encapsulates parenting in every way. Is that what, it, what else did I, you said something else, Tim, that it's that, what, what did you say? It's not that he was not the father, it was that, I missed what you said. No, the last part, you said it was something else. God as father is not a gender matter. God as father is not a gender matter. God is not gender. God, with the designation of father, is a perfect image of father. Human beings and their fallenness have corrupted the image. So we reflect God, but God does not reflect us. Yeah, that's really super important to get the which came first and whose image is whose. Yeah, God didn't, he didn't, re, he didn't reveal himself because he created us and said, I don't know, what am I going to do? Okay, I'll pretend to be like them. It's not that way at all. It's the other way. Joel. Um, this is bringing in the second person of the Trinity, but the son who always existed. But I think one thing that makes the father an ideal father in that relationship is he delights to elevate the son, I think. I think we see that in Hebrews 1. It, he's given Jesus, the son, all the authority on earth. And there's this, I just think it's really neat that the father, as the 
having the title in superiority would yet still elevate the second person of himself in that way. Yeah, I think that's another really key characteristic of a father is they love it when their child does well, right? We don't, we're not resentful. We, we glory in it. You know, did you have at one time? Um, talking about a perfect father, he measures out as he chastens us. He measure, measures out. I never, I never believe that God punishes us as his children, but I do believe that God disciplines us. But he does it in a perfect way that he measures out exactly what we should be receiving and how long and the depth of that. But being a perfect father, he can do that as only he can do that. And good. So he measures out for us and prepares and plans and protects and is proud of his children and all those. So... But the fact that the father has always been a father is important to realize that this is not something new he started to do a billion years ago. It's who he has always, always been. It is who he is. It's not a new role. And, and so that's the second point I wanted to do is for, a, for a, um, an understanding standpoint, compare with Allah. For example, the teaching of Islam about God as a single person. If I'm to understand correctly, and I, I'm not trying to speak for Muslim people here, I'm trying to analyze from a Christian perspective what it would mean if God is a single person rather than a three-person entity. And that is that Allah, or the, the mono, not monotheism, mono person, what's the right way to say that? Monodeity, okay, so you know what I mean when I say mono. It means one person. The Trinity is one God, so we're one, it's not many gods, it's one God, but he manifests himself in three persons. Islam would say there's one God, one person. What that means then is that before he created, he was alone. He had, you could not say that this version of God, if that were true, had always been loving. He had no one to love. And so he would not have the capacity. Now, you could say, but he created his creation, and now he can love it. But do you realize what that does is it sets up a contingency that God depends upon his created realm in order to manifest himself as loving. And so God becomes his person, his essence, would depend upon creature in order to reveal himself as love and therefore can't really reveal himself as love. But if and since the Trinity has always existed, God has always been a father and so he doesn't need his creation in order to be loving. He has always been loving somebody. It's not a new thing to him. It didn't start when he created. He is infinitely, eternally a loving father. He's never not cared about his son. He never, he's never not had a son to care about. 
It's an interesting thing I think we need to remember. And so this is why the text can say in the Bible that God is love. You see, if, if he was a, alone, you could not say he is love. You could say he shows love or he learned how to love or he demonstrated that he could love. But you could never say that alone God is love like you can say the Trinitarian God is love because the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Holy Spirit loves the Father, the Holy Spirit loves the Son. And all three of them are always loving all the time and always have. And that's why it's accurate to say that God is love. It's a beautiful thing. It's a really unique thing, actually, of Trinitarian Christianity. No other God has such a claim to be love. And it's not just a cool Instagram post, that, oh, God is love, isn't that sweet? No, it, we're talking about he actually, it's, it is his essence to be loving somebody. There's a person that God has always, always been the persons of the Trinity have always been loving one another. So that's a pretty key, pivotal thing. You see what I'm trying to say? Any thoughts about that? Does that strike you as, as a, um, what other benefits or thoughts does that shoot off? In that short moment, I went through a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, the God is love argument is often used like you just did to describe the Trinity existing together. And I, my first thought was, I've always heard that, but is that really true? So I just, I just opened up to First John 4, which it talks about God's love. And just by way of reinforcing that point, those verses from John, 1 John 4, 7 through 1 John 4, 21, it doesn't explicitly say God is love because he exists eternally as the three persons. But in that very passage, we see the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It talks about the Father sending the Son as a demonstration for love. It talks about how he gives of his Holy Spirit as a demonstration of his love. We see all three parts together. And so I was initially skeptical because it's just one of those claims that I hear a lot. And now I just reinforced it. So... Any other thoughts that that brings out or ways that you'd amplify or try? I'm trying to get you to, I want you to see the implications of this. It's not just emotive talk. It's a reality. Any other thoughts about that? One of the things that the speaker pointed out, and I sort of mentioned it this morning, is that false gods, um, the gods of our own creation, are always selfish. They always need us for something. But God, the true God, is not in need. He had and has everything already. He's not lonely. He doesn't need glory. Glory is one person noticing the beauty of another person. And Jesus has been glorifying the Father forever. And so God doesn't need anybody to worship him because there's already adoration and worship within the Trinity. He doesn't need anybody to talk to because they already talk to each other. He doesn't, so there's, there's a, it elevates our sense, in my sense anyway, of the total radical independence of God. He just doesn't need anything. He gives and gives and gives 
and is never diminished. Whereas any other concept of God, by definition, is the other way around. They have, you need to defend their honor. You need to give them sacrifices or else. You see, unless these two things are true, there's no way... And I think this is a valid line of reasoning, and please help me if it's not. But this is what I want to assert. Unless God has always been a father and he's always been loving, there's no way he could do grace. Because that would be giving something that he didn't have. If, the, if he weren't already in love, if he weren't already love, he wouldn't have the capacity to give because he would need his creation to give something to. But he's already been giving. I, I'm not sure how to... Does that make sense? I'm trying to, I'm trying to have you understand that it's... Th- precisely because God has been loving the Son forever, that he can love the world because he has the capacity to love in a way that doesn't depend on the recipient because he's already got a love relationship that's eternally reciprocative, reciprocating. Right? He doesn't need us. It's already a full, he's fully filled up with love. His love bank is never empty. So he can give to us out of the abundance of his grace rather than having to muster it up from somewhere else that he doesn't have. It for, you, try, you, you understand what I'm trying? There is something about the, um, the eternal nature of the triune relationship that is the basis upon which a creature could be given grace. I, I, I don't know for sure if that's a strong assertion, if that makes all the sense in the world, but I, I want to say it kind of does. So I'm working on that one, right? So let's put a pin in that. Maybe we'll come back to it someday. All right? So, so those are the first three points. And then the next one I want to point out, or in this line of reasoning, is that the Bible describes salvation as adoption. If and since God has always been a father and he is love and he's not alone, what does this mean then for us that salvation is described as adoption? I know that's a hard question because it sounds so open-ended. But what are the implications for us of the father having always been a father that we are now adopted? Do you see, what, what does that make you think? Is there a conclusion? Marie, I see that bid. <laughs> Thinking like um, before we are saved, we are enemies with God. We are, um, you know, we are not his children. And so when he saves us and reconciles us to him, 
then it's almost like we, you know, you, you have to be like him. Um, Father-son thing. <laughs> I, you know, or... Um, um, yeah, think of uh, orphans or like street street orphans, right? Um, adopted into the family. Uh, Jess had a student this year who both of her parents died and her aunt and uncle adopted her, right? Kind of grafted her into the family, so to speak. But Jess, what we had to we had to right maybe go to Cleveland or something for a couple of days. And just those two days of her missing school, um, like put that same child in a panic, and right, and her adopted parents had to write and let Jess know what was going on, right? She's grafted in. So if the father were not always a father, and you could not say for certain that God is love, then how would you describe salvation? You would say salvation is the reconciliation of a friendship, or salvation is having your sins forgiven, or salvation is success, living successfully. But because God has always been a father, he can use terminology like salvation is an adoption because he understands what it means to be our father. Do you, do you see what I'm trying to get at? The, the, radical, the radical dependence of terminology like adoption on the fact that God is already and has always been a father. That's what I'm trying to have you, you get. Any thoughts, comments? Do you see what I'm saying? All right, got a couple. <clears throat> Adoption is taking a child that was not your natural child and taking it in as if the, he or she were your natural child. A couple that doesn't have any children, the man is not the father. But when they adopt a child, now he is. This child becomes as if it were his. But another family that has children and adopts so they have more children, they already were a father and a mother before the adoption. But what they did is take a child they didn't have to take and didn't have to take care of and provide for. They're taking a foreign child in that sense and making it as their own natural child in equal, equal errors and equal under the law. There's a number of spots that talk about adoption, but I kind of like what Hebrews says. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Again, he says, here am I and the children of God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. 
kind of like how that puts it. You know, again, we see the relationship of God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, and then that by extension through the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ's resurrection, we are made brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We're taken out of this slavery to the fear of death and brought in, we are named family. And I just, I really like that. Anyone else thoughts? Alexis. I think when I think of like salvation as adoption, we're actively choosing God. And I think we're all kids of God, like at the beginning, like he made us, we know that from mud and sticks and all this greatness, so we were always his. But, you know, on our walk on earth, sometimes we walk away from him very frequently. He's always our father in his eyes, but sometimes in our eyes, we don't see him that way. So I think it's a two-way kind of street. More on our part is that we really choose him, and that's our salvation. Yeah, so I think what you're kind of addressing there is that, in general, the father creator is our progenitor from a creative standpoint. So we're all God's children in a creature to creator relationship, but that the unique aspect of being an adopted uh, son co-heir with Jesus is particular. And so it's a subset of the other. And it does, um, by God's grace, it does involve our response to his grace, right? So there's a decision point on our part to to receive that too. What I'm, what I'm trying to say, or at least what I think I understood, is that since God has always been a father, a perfect father, like we described, you know, protecting, providing, glorying in his son, there is that salvation is not just being made friends with him, but he's bringing us into his family. He is going, he is specifically saying, I am going to be your father now in a way that is like the way I'm a father to Jesus. I'm, I'm taking you into my family. That's a really significant thing, thought when you think about it. We are, we are being brought into a relationship with him that is as profound as the relationship of the Lord Jesus. And so his relationship with the Lord Jesus. So if you imagine what it was like for God and Jesus to love each other forever and ever, whatever that perfect love is like, we are being brought into that. We're not being brought into another kind of relationship that the creator has with creatures. I love the deer. I love the way they frolic through the woods. I'm proud of my creation of the horse. God is doing those. God is proud of his creation of the horse in the book of Job, right? He's, he thinks these are cool accomplishments. But that's way different than this person is now my child. I am in a relationship with him that's of the same kind as my relationship with my son, the Lord Jesus. Do you see what we've been invited into? Do you see how 
different it is? Where in the Bible would you get support for what I just said? A couple of good places. Romans 8, for one, right? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children, and by him we, call, we cry out, Abba. So we, we can be so much like the Lord Jesus in our relationship to God that we would call him Daddy, that there would be this intimate, familial recognition that we get to participate in that. But then also in John 17, there's a cool passage um, at the end of this is Jesus' prayer. And in verse, I'll, I'll read the whole thing for context here, this part anyway. In the third part, he's praying for us who believe in the witness of the apostles. My prayer is not for them, the apostles alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So he's praying for us, okay? May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. So that first statement, that they, us believers, might be one as he is one, kind of points me to you and I are united with each other. We're supposed to be one. That's how I would have interpreted that. I think that's legitimate, right? That they would be one as we are one. So we're supposed to be friends with each other, like Jesus and God are friends with each other. That's how I interpreted that. And then I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as I loved you. And Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So now Jesus is amping it up a level. I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you, you gave me, the way you loved me before the creation of the world. The Father has always loved the Son, and Jesus is praying, I want them, the adopted ones, to be with me like I have always been with you. You see the amp it up a little? And then in verse um, 25, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. He's praying, Jesus is praying that the love that the Father has for Jesus may be in us. The same kind of love. Not a creature-creator love, a father-son love. That that love would be us and that I myself, the Lord Jesus, wants to be in us. It's really a lot closer than I'm willing to believe. It's just incredible. But it's true, because Jesus said so, that God loves me, that Jesus prays for me, that I will understand that God loves me just as much as he loves his son Jesus. It's the same. It's not a different kind of love. 
It's the same. You follow what I'm trying to? I think, and that's only possible because the Father has always been loving like that. And he's applying it to his creatures, those who are born again in his image. It's a pretty amazing thing. All right, so I just got a couple more points real quick to wrap up. Number five, to be most like Jesus is... is how do you finish that sentence if you're going to be most like jesus when what are you doing when you are most like jesus according to the gospel what would you how would you finish that sentence you are most like jesus when there's no wrong answer alexis when you're displaying love okay so that's, I think that's partway there for sure. When you're displaying love in general, we should be, we, it's, it should be true that we are love, like God is love. But was another layer? Okay, when we forgive, that's a really big part of loving. That's how Jesus loves us for sure. I, I, I. Okay, so to, we are most like Jesus when we're most like God. That would make sense, too. You, these are not wrong answers you're given. I'm fishing for a specific phrase, but um, you are not wrong. To pray, that would make sense. But when am I most like Jesus? What is Jesus? Yeah, when he, when he loves his Father, right? When he glorifies his Father. I would say those are synonyms. So I am most like Jesus when I'm loving the Father, Jesus loves the Father all the time. He does everything the Father wants him to do because he loves the Father. He always has. And so when I love who he loves, I am most like him. Dave, you want to just... Yeah, to tag off of what Joel said, and he's so correct, but one of the most intriguing verses in the Bible that just raises my hair and gives me goosebumps, Jesus says to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. That's sobering. So we're most like Jesus. To be the most like Jesus is to love the Father. That's what I'm trying to say, to love the Father. That is what the Trinity has been doing, and I am most like it. So verse 6 then is to be full of the Spirit is... is to speak in tongues, right? Now, what is to, what, what is it mean to be full of the Spirit in this, in this Trinitarian shape of the gospel? What would, what would be most like being full of the Holy Spirit? Okay, to project the love of the Father is a good way to say it. What other ways would you say it? What does the Holy Spirit want us to do? Love Jesus, right? So I'm most like Jesus when I love the Father, and I'm most full of the Spirit when I love Jesus, when I love God. When the whole, the Spirit is the one who teaches us to say, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit wants us to understand that Jesus is the most great treasure. He's the beautiful one. To be full of the Spirit is to know and love Jesus and believe that he loves me that much. And so God didn't create us because he needed us. God didn't create us because he was bored. God created us to give creatures, persons, the privilege of experiencing and being in love with God, to enter into a Trinity-like love. We don't become members of the Godhead. I'm not going to be a, I don't become God, but God, in his grace, shares the dance with us. The eternal dance of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is so cool. They said, let's make some creatures and invite them into this. This is so great. And, they, and we get to do it. We get to be part of it. We are. And so I, I thought it was pretty interesting to be reminded that it's because the Father has always been the Father and because he loves the world, he sends his Son and he delights in his son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he delights in the son. And because the son loves the father, he obeys the father. And because they both love us so much, Jesus dies on the cross so that we can be forgiven for our rebellion and brought into that relationship again, the one that we destroyed with our rebellion, and be in his family forever and ever. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And he wants us to be in the same love that he has for the Father, that the Spirit would fill us with the love of the Father, and that we would live in that, just like Jesus said, that he prays to his Father, that I myself may be in them, just like you and I are one. You and I have been invited into something way bigger than religion or clouds with harps. Right? We're in a relationship with God, and it's pretty neat. It's yeah. the. We're not in just a relationship. We're in the relationship by which the entire universe is purposed. Any other closing thoughts or statements? Does that make sense a little bit? I commend to you that, uh, that sermon. It's a really good one. And if you listen to it, you'll find out how many parts I got wrong. All right. Father, thank you for loving me that much. Forgive me for how frequently I profane it. I, I don't regard it as holy and special. Um, maybe that's what makes it even more amazing is that you love me in spite of my failings. I'm not a perfect son like Jesus, and yet because of your love for me, you've, you've sent Jesus to, to pay my penalty and then provide forgiveness for me, and you're going to make me a perfect son, a perfect daughter. And so thank you for that grace, and um, please let me live in the light of this truth even now before it's all finished, and, uh, and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for 
participating and listening, and you are dismissed.